Welcome to a Book Shambles Extra special with the novelist Christopher Edge and also with the playwright Philip Ridley. These are the shortened interviews which are available for everyone for the full length conversations. Then why not subscribe to us via Patreon and become a supporter of Book Shambles? What's the hardest thing? I mean, when you're, I would imagine, you know, with the, for each time when you go one, you have to remain predominantly accurate to our kind of current understanding of, of physics, yeah. even when you play. I mean, it's that thing with a famous story with um, Interstellar where, yes. you know, as a whole, it is uh, scientifically accurate to our current theories. But there was a point where Christopher Nolan, they went, oh, but that wouldn't happen. And they go, do you know what? This <laughs> is a level of drama required in the film, yeah. which means just for this, and just for this bit yeah. alone, I'm going to say, sorry, but we're not going to be uh, scientifically accurate yeah. here. And, you know, I would imagine that when you're playing with ideas, two things, which is one, getting the balance between delivering the scientific idea, two, keeping the plot on the rails. Yes. Getting that delivery of information mixed with also narrative must be yeah. hard sometimes it is and, the, and this is the thing and this is why I think it's good that I don't have a science background that basically whenever I start to write a book obviously the, the, the story always comes from the character and situation and then the science obviously is an element of that so I have to kind of find out about the science that helps me to shape the plot so the science it's all cohering it's not that one's leading the other it's all helping to inform the stories I develop in my head. But I have to, I have to teach myself to understand enough of it about, about it to be able to write the story mm. and then have to try and present these ideas in passing to a, a leadership of kind of 10 plus in a way that the leaders understand it. But it's not, it's a story. It, so it's not a kind of non-fiction book of here's a bit about quantum physics or here's a bit about... Uh, the, the the possibility that we're living in a holographic universe, I, I kind of can touch on those things, but it's it's the way I do that is in the right way for the story, so it's not heavy-handed. So I kind of got to in, understand it in my head, put it into a story that works, a story for, that's going to be led by ten, ten years upwards, that doesn't feel like it's non-fiction. It's just a story. What what are the reactions you've had to? I mean, I, I would imagine you get quite a few. There was there was a wonderful series of books about thirty years ago by Russell Stannard, who's a physicist, yes. uh, uh, Space Time and Unclouded, yes. and uh, he was kind of introducing Einsteinian ideas to yes. to to kids. and And there was a, a book of letters that he had received. You know, yeah. kind of these questions for Uncle Albert, yeah. and I would imagine you have. You know, now there is it's even easier to get get in contact uh. with the author. It's, it's terrible actually because then people get in, the children that get excited about it get fascinated by it and they're so excited by these, these ideas and then want to go and read lots of complicated books about quantum physics and stuff and find out these things and, and then they ask me questions does this mean that this you know if could you do this if this was then and if we are living in a multiverse would then we be able to transmit and if black hole information theory, can we? Would we ever know what was inside a black hole? And I'm kind of having to go there, going, I've got a D in GCSE yeah. physics, so I kind of then have to. They get so excited about it, I kind of have to kind of like tell them as much as I know. But then, in a sense, I'm saying, there's so much things out there to mm. find out. You can watch brilliant television programs, you can listen to brilliant radio programs about this. You know, go and explore. You know, the universe is waiting for you in a way. It's, it's almost what's nice. What feels quite a privilege is 
wow, there's there's one guy who tweeted me and he said that his daughter had the ambition she wanted to be a should just say by the way in the background that is the hot water machine that is we are not um, starting up a particle collider uh, or anything else just here. I don't know how loud that is on this actual recording um, and it will eventually die down and uh, and the atoms are colliding now and the gluons are being... yeah there's definitely more energy in the atoms <laughs> into the um, sorry yes so, yeah, so, so this guy he tweeted me he said his daughter basically wanted to be a singer I think she'd been watching X Factor and, and that was her ambition she wanted to be a singer and then she read The Many Worlds of Albie Blight, and she wanted to be a quantum physicist. And then he tweeted me a picture of her on World Book Day dressed up as a scientist. And that, that was quite a, a, a lovely moment to kind of think that, yeah, this book is having an impact on someone's ambition in a way, and that's mm. kind of cool. So, so I, you know, it, it'd be wonderful to think that someone's picking up the book and being inspired to become a scientist or an engineer, or just storyteller, basically. So, you know, there's just... Yeah, the possibilities are out there. What about Jamie Drake equation then? What's yeah, now, that was the second one of the series. That was the second one. In, I mean, they're all standalone stories, but they're all kind of inspired by an element of science. So Jamie Drake was in the Jamie Drake equation, obviously famous as the Drake equation about the, the possibility of how many alien civilizations there could be in the in the Milky Way. But in a way, it was my Kind of, I grew up in the 1980s, so I loved Steven Spielberg films, and E.T. is one of my fa- favorite films, which is a film about divorce, basically. Mm. So I, I kind of, with the the Jamie Drake equation, which is about a boy whose dad is an astronaut up in the International Space Station, sending an interstellar mission in search of alien life, and his son being down on Earth, missing his dad, uh, it turned into a novel about divorce and how Jamie's parents were getting divorced and Jamie accidentally downloads a transmission from the Hubble Space Telescope which an astronomer, a rogue astronomer, I love rogue astronomers, mm-hmm. has, has hacked into to search for uh, alien transmissions and, and signs of alien life and he accidentally downloads an alien transmission from the Hubble Space Telescope, he actually downloads an alien civilization that has uh, transformed itself into photons of light to escape from a black hole onto his phone. And, uh, yeah, so as his parents' uh, relationship is falling apart, his dad in orbit in space, Jamie has to deal with an alien on his phone. And when his dad's mission in space goes wrong, Jamie's got to see whether he can be a hero like he thought his dad was too. So it's, that that's a book really about, I think, that moment in childhood where you have that perception that your parents are human beings with flaws. Mm. So it's kind of exploring that a little bit too, which E.T. does brilliantly. It's funny, isn't it? As you said, when you go back to them, when you were kids and you see those films, yeah. it's a film about an extraterrestrial and then the... Because uh, the, the, the SETI stuff as well, which I love, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and you know where the Fra- Frank Drake, of course, was involved in yeah. the Golden Record as well, which oh, is yes. Voyager and Voyager. But that great... All those stories of... Everyone who, when they went to SETI to go and listen, you know, perhaps that signal which would suggest it had been made by a form of life. 
Um, and everyone apparently goes in and thinks it's going to be me. I'm going to be the one who hears it. And the, even Carl Sagan, you know, he went in and he was he was there for about, apparently after about an hour, he started to drift off. And he had a little snooze. He was like, I'm definitely going to discover the uh, extraterrestrials. It's taking ages. Hurry up, hurry up. You know, and that's, it's, I, I think all of that, it's, it's an interesting thing we were talking before about. I've just read the book Roadside um, Picnic, which uh, um, was turned into the film Stalker, though. It's, it's, in some ways, there's a lot of very different kind of take on, on, on the same idea, both of them brilliant and that idea of what changes for humanity once we know there is intelligent life out there i don't think there will that's the thing that's the interesting thing isn't it we'd like to think that we'll, we'll suddenly in a time when it things seem increasingly nationalistic and there's some aggression you know that it's always been that idea hasn't there that, that if alien we, we discover there's alien life out there we'll suddenly start thinking as a species as a pan-global intelligence and, and I fear that maybe we wouldn't maybe we'd all get very scared and retreat to their kind of like caves but I say that but then the other part of me the, probably the children's author part of my brain thinks actually no I think you know I go into schools and I look at the next generation and I think there's a lot of hope there so yeah. maybe there would be if it happens when Trump's president, though, you do fear that he'd like be, where can I aim it at then? <laughs> That's what I love about the film Arrival, which is, you know, who are the people who are dealing with it most philosophically? Well, of course it's the Americans. You think, no, they'd have been firing <laughs> guns and missiles at these strange floating kind of blobs. Um, but it's, I mean, and that idea of, I suppose the thing is that if an alien intelligence contacts us, then that will firstly mean that uh, it is more intelligent than us, and then yeah. we just have to hope that it's benevolent. Yes. I mean, in, when I go into schools and I talk about the Jamie Day equation, I talk about Jamie downloading this alien intelligence onto his phone, and I flash up two images behind myself and say, when we think about aliens, we usually have two images in our head, and I flash up a picture of E.T. I say, there's a cute, cuddly aliens who just want to go home. And then I flash up an image from Mars Attacks. <laughs> and I say, and then there's the evil planet-destroying aliens who just want to blow up the White House. And it's like, you know, who will we get? And that's the big question, isn't it? We all are hoping for the ET. It's always that, I always go back to that Richard Feynman quote, that thing about the imagination of nature is far greater than the imagination of man. And you kind of end up thinking, whatever it might look like. That's kind of one of the things I liked about Arrival was... You know, it went a little bit further than a lot of other ideas. And then, like, there's that episode of Star Trek, isn't it, where it turns out what they thought was just a piece of rock is actually sentient. Yes. And, like, it's like, the, well, there's a famous Alan Moore Green Lantern story as well, where some kind of intergalactic supervillain has heard about this fabled Green Lantern who's called Mogo and is, 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 is kind of indestructible and all-powerful and stuff. And he like, keeps on landing on what, what he thought of as Mogo's home world wanting to kick seven shades out of him. And where are you, Mogo? Show yourself, show yourself. And then eventually he's defeated and, and flies off in a huff. And then you realise that the planet has got this green lantern band around it and Mogo is the planet. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, so the new book is about reality. It's not quite out yet, is it? No, it comes out on the 5th of April. It's called The Infinite Lives of Maisie Day. And it's about a girl called Maisie who wakes up on the morning of her 10th birthday very excited, you know, she's hoping for the things that she needs to build her own nuclear reactor, because she's a bit of a kind of child boffin. Uh, but when she goes downstairs, uh, she can't find her mum, she can't find her dad, her older sister Lily doesn't seem to be upstairs, and then she hears a doorbell, 
and she goes to answer the door thinking, oh, my mum and dad must have just popped out for something last minute from the shops. But when she opens the door, she sees no street, no load, no cars, just an infinite blackness stretching on forever. See, that bit really reminded me of Sapphire and Steel. Oh, yeah. You know, that moment yeah, yeah, where, yeah. if you've done the, the, the end of Sapphire and Steel, where they were never quite certain, really, if they were going to be able to resurrect it or not, but it ends with them suddenly in this, basically, this box in a blackness, yes. where they, you know, very down... You know, British science fiction, in terms of its yes. downbeat ending, you know, yeah, Blake yeah. Seven was the same. Basically, yeah. everyone dies, and, you know, Avon kills Blake, and it turns out Blake may well not have been the traitor he thought he was. That's Sapphire right. and Steel, they end up trapped in a lifeless darkness you know almost like the uh, what's it called the the uh, phantom zone it almost oh, yeah, from superman. superman yeah yeah no so so Maisie obviously slams the door shut and then you basically it's it's uh, two narratives you have a narrative which is also appears to be Maisie's actual 10th birthday and the, these two narratives and the two Maisies kind of you find out the story of her 10th birthday and it kind of explores this, these questions of, of what the RT is. So you have a situation where in one narrative, the darkness, the infinite blackness outside starts to come inside and is a laze in the house. It's, it seems like her kitchen is expanding like a black, like in the Big Bang and then her bathroom is turning into a black hole. So it kind of plays around with scientific ideas but to explore these ideas about the nature of the RT and how we know, how, how, how we know we really exist. And you and you find out by the end of the novel what that 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 situation that Maisie is in and why she's having that experience. No spoilers. Um, now we better talk about your uh, um, series of monologues. Oh, as thank well, you. Because I that find, is otherwise. I was wondering when we were going to get around. Yeah, that's the problem with just sitting down and going. Right, we'll turn it on. Just start talking. So. Um, a new series of monologues. Yeah. Uh, two actors. Yeah. Uh, one male, one female. But. Uh, you've specifically written these. I'll start off. The, the, I'll just so everyone knows this is at the Southern Playhouse uh, till the middle of March. Um, you specifically written these monologues to be gender neutral. Is, yes. Is, is, yes. Now, what, so this, this yeah. intro because at the moment, I mean, the, the the arguments, sadly, on social media, which means there is no depth to them. There is merely this constant fury amongst people who may well actually get on if they ever met. But this is so the nature. First of all, why did you decide that they would be gender neutral? Well, they're from... I've been, actually, I've been writing the, not these specific monologues, but this collection of monologues, which together are called The Vespers, because the first one that started it was called Vesper. I've been writing these since... Um, well, the F- Vesper was written when I was at art school. And they've always been gender neutral. They've always been gender neutral. So it's not something that I'm just... Doing, I've got there's about 60, 70 to 100 of them now. There's lots of them, various lengths. Some of them are like five pages, some of them are ten pages, some of them are half a page, a few lines. They're all these different lengths of monologues. They can be formed by a male or female actor. And what I've been uh, inviting directors to do who are interested is to just look through the collection of Vespers and to pick a few that they think work together as an evening in a theatre, either they share a theme, or they share an atmosphere, or they just, re- they, they just echo off each other in a kind of interesting way. So um, Max Lindsay, who's a director I've uh, worked with before and a good friend, uh, came along and he chose these, initially five, and then I wrote a new one making it six. These six monologues, uh, six Vesper monologues that he feels work together um, to say something about where we are now 
in terms of zeitgeist and all of that. So um, that's my rather long-winded explanation of what they are. Well, the last time we spoke, it was just... It, it must have been just about as Trump was going to be uh, going through the inauguration. Yeah. Uh, and we were talking about that idea of how you can sometimes take old work and sometimes you can take new work and what you're doing to try and piece together your understanding of the world through writing for other voices. And so how much is this? Because, you know, angry, that's one of the most popular emotions at the moment. It's really, they've got a huge variety of emoticons to cover that now. If you, if, you know, some people are using even words as well. But how much do these monologues... How much is it when you, you are writing, do you find yourself going, right, I'm beginning to piece together some understanding of other minds, of those minds that you don't necessarily, you know, of, of emotions that you might not feel about certain issues about? Well, there's always, obviously there's always an element of needing to do that because you have to, you know, if you're writing characters, if you're doing a story that involves characters, which, you know, you do in novels, stage plays, all of that, the writer's job, unless he's writing it purely in a first-person singular, the writer's job is to not be judgmental about those characters, but to be able to see every character in that piece from that character's point of view, you know, so you're not making a kind of, you're not necessarily making a moral statement, you're putting forward an argument about a situation that it's up to the audience to kind of see and sift through and have a debate in the bar afterwards. So to do that, you would have to kind of get into the skulls of other people. Um, and I kind of, I enjoy that really. I enjoy trying to um, work out how somebody can end up doing something that you would never do. And making sense of that I mean that's kind of so yes the, the short answer is that to a certain extent it does but I'm not sure that you're using the front part of the brain when you're doing that really you just because a lot of um, you know a lot of creativity a lot of creation is about the act of words <laughs> it's about interest in words really so it's like asking Suzanne well how much do you know about the harvest of apples this year having painted them for so long and you know he said I know nothing about the harvest of apples but I do know all the colours that are in the skin and I can tell you about those and I think the same is a lot the same is true in a, in a way about writing I think that you know if you're if you're in love with words the things that attract you in is perhaps the way that you feel that that person speaks the kind of poetry that they have, and then everything sort of like comes from there. And if you're doing it intensely enough, you, and you're in that skin of that person enough, I don't think you have to make conscious efforts to kind of try and understand. It just happens mm. that you're just inhabiting them. I mean, it happens in the moment. You've only got to watch children playing. Watch five and six and seven-year-olds playing. I'm the captain of the ship. Now, you're the pirate. They're instantly the captain and the pirate. Takes no working out. They're instantly capable of pushing any number of their friends off the plank and killing them. And oh no! And then we get to that whole of that experiment, which involved you lot are going to be warders and you lot are going to be prisoners. Oh, the blue eye, yeah, the other yeah, one, yeah. the blue eyes and the brown eyes, yeah, and, and all of that. Yeah, yeah. But that's it because I, I just read a, a novel called Dodgers, which isn't the normal kind of area. It's it's, it's a, a, a kind of it's it's an urban crime-ish novel, mm. but it's about uh, a, a young guy who is sent off to go and murder a judge. Um, it's written by, I presume the guy's probably in his 30s, he's a uh, white uh, lecturer, uh, and it's about, I mean the incredible thing is basically you keep forgetting that two of the main characters are 13 and 15, mm. because their life is so 
adult. Yeah. And they are these people who live in the boxes, this kind of, you know, I suppose area, not similar to projects in, 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 you know, in LA or whatever. And I kept thinking, how is this writer? To me, it is a, a, one of those many shamanic acts right. to go, how has he managed to become so uh, inhabit these different characters, this 13-year-old boy who is just, you know, he is a little bit more trigger-happy and he just goes for it, and this 15-year-old as well who's, who's already kind of got the weight of the world on him. And just the way it... And, and I wondered, you know, what would a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old make of, of, of these stories? But that bit of being able to inhabit characters. Yeah. And then... Yeah. Well, we've had some... Last night we had our first preview and we had some quite young members of the audience in for there and they kind of uh, seem to like it a lot really I think it's kind of I mean it's um, you know the artist Paul Clay said that drawing is you know a line just gone for a walk and it's um, I think writing is very similar you know it's like you're um, when you when we discuss it like this, it implies that I know where I'm going, <laughs> which 90%, 95% of the time, I don't. Um, and it also sort of tends to imply that everything I'm doing turns out to be pretty good, and that's not true either, you know. So for every time I feel that I've hit something and it's true and it works, there's 50 things that go in the trash and no one ever sees. So there's lots, you know, when people come round and... Uh, to see me in uh, at home, and uh, I, they're always intrigued by the kind of shelves and shelves of new shelves. I have new shelves that have just gone up, notebooks that I've got that are just full of work that no one's seen. You know, just things that I started and just never went anywhere. And you wait for that moment where it kind of, um, you wait for that moment where it kind of clicks and something happens that feels true to you. I think you also just have to be, you you, you have to. Um, you know, have a lot of empathy and you have to love people. That's the thing. You know, I love, I love all my characters, no matter what they've done, in the, in the act of writing them. I might not like them once I see them on stage and I can see them as villains and being, you know, reprehensible once they're on stage. You know, you know people have, you know, in my stage plays, as you know, people have torched each other, killed each other, done everything to each other. But in the moment of doing it, I can understand quite clearly why they're doing that terrible behaviour. I can understand why they're doing it. And that's, um, that's something that you can't explain really how that, that happens. Um, it just kind of, it is a kind of like a kind of strange thing. Of, it's like alchemy, really. And I always know, you know, just, I'm just shooting up a, a tangent a bit, but I always know when I've got it because I can start seeing the world entirely through that character's eyes. Like I can walk down the street and I know what they would think of that and I can hear these voices go, look at that, I don't like that. I know what they think about everything. Um, and that kind of, that's, that's when you know you've got it. That's when you know you've got it. And you only use the tip, tip of the iceberg of that in the final play. You know, but somehow it does seep its way in for an actor to feel that there's a fully rounded thing there. Thank you very much for listening. Christopher's new book, The Infinite Lives of Maisie Day, is out now. An angry Phillips series of monologues is on at the Southwark Playhouse as we speak. 
And if you'd like to hear the full version of these conversations, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles and become a supporter of the show for as little as $1 an episode. And we'll only ever charge for uh, three episodes per month, regardless of how many full normal episodes and book shambles extras like this that we put out only ever get charged three amounts per month. And without your support on Patreon, we we simply couldn't continue to make book shambles. So uh, if you'd like us to keep making them, that's an excellent way to make sure that happens. Uh, if not, you can go to, if not, if not, if you can't pledge is what I'm saying. Not if you don't want it to continue. If you don't want it to continue, why have you listened to this quite frankly? Um, but if you do want it to continue, but uh, you can't support us on Patreon, then you can leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show, or just tweet about it and tell your friends about it. And over on Patreon, you'll see there's lots of different rewards for the different amounts of pledges. There's free book bags and behind-the-scenes episodes and uh, lots of extra episodes like this. Uh, you can even be a guest on Book Shambles, so do check that out, uh, patreon.com slash bookshambles or cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles. So thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back uh, later this week with a new episode with uh, Stuart Lee is the special guest, returning Stuart Lee. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Trunkman Productions.